Hey folks, welcome to episode 129 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features Alden Grant Rhino. He is a, a strong man who carries his faithful companion Pikachu to the high airy peaks in the North Cascades. Alden and I talk about bodybuilding, climbing, mountains in the Cascades, nuclear energy, and how his passions have affected his character. Alden is trying to climb the Washington Bulgers list. It's a list of the 100 highest elevation peaks in Washington. The Cascades is a wild land filled with epic adventure, crumbly rock, glaciers, hanging valleys, and craggy peaks. You can see the burning passion in Alden's wild grimace, and I promise it's not because he is a ginger. Okay, maybe it's part ginger, part love for the highs and lows of the landscape in the wild and in his mind. You can find uh, Alden on Instagram and um, Facebook as Alden Grant Rhino, um, and I'll be sure to leave the link to his Instagram in the show notes along with the, the books we talked about in the podcast. Before we start, I'm going to play you in with a track by Milo called Souvenir. Enjoy. It's the lazy theologian, the clumsiest poet, stumbling through the poplar grove, and he doesn't even notice those toes bled a little. The bathrooms are sacred space if faith is under the left nipple. That's the king, no Martin Luther. You might have seen him riding on a green Martian scooter, clutching a Hewlett-Packard computer. Indeed, he's ageless like Trevor Throneberry. I don't worship Norse gods or stone fairies. At home on a cracked iPhone, alone and hairy, casting postmodernist abracadabra. It starts like this. Dun, 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 dun. I don't know. I thought they might have killed me, so I read the Hagakuri on a very long drive from Chicago to here. Holding Viking spears and I cried a lot of tears, but you know I kept an oxbow lake in my thoughtful cave. And we both thought in gray or shades, maybe even monochrome, this monotone is great. Till the monotony saw its own philosophy to justify the dimples in its face, in its face. So we made a couple sticker packs and pretended we didn't hear when white fans said nigger fast. Um, there's pollo in this menudo. I'm the newest fellow in this group, though, and they're all feasting on my naivete. I guess it's picture day. I guess it's pizza day. If purity of heart is to will only one thing, then you have some explaining to do. I can rap like an Afghan. I can rap like my last name was Black Man. I can rap like the son of Mike Ladd. Let me take out a full-page Vice ad that supposes it might ask if underground hip-hop was just one tight fad. This is an all-seeing eye-eye patch, if I might add. Got many styles. This time just trying to follow Milo. These days, most of the time, I'm chilling in the hollow. The sea slacks. Back in high school, I wanted to be abstract, not like you, but pretty cool. In my heart, was always more busy bees and multi. Lunchline headsets had me thinking yogurt backwards, plug in the bathroom fit. Lake Champlain is crystal clear, I owe it to myself to speak free. Kelly brought me green tea ice cream. I could never forget eating sushi on $10, feeling rich. That was 06. And I wrote a lot of mean shit. 
but only got love in my heart to go along with all them sad ships that never came. But that's just life, and life is strange. How do you change the way you change the way you feel? Rain to wash the window clear. Wipe away constellation atmosphere. Blue lagoon, my isolation. Now I'm paper plane folded. Myself into a fortune. Hoping some missing ocean will find some luck. My brother questioned once. Life in a fishbowl leaves me floating in the punch. Just trying to stay sober. Never read that high to Kirby. Think he'd loan me a copy. I'm still stuck on Murakami. Calvino looming. Looking down from Vista's coolie. Through open windows, moving grass on sand patch. Move swat by red clouds. See dead sounds. Dead snaps. Circling metamorphosis. Circling dumbly. Lit intellectual grumbling. Circling humbly. Numbly picked from keypad like cabbage patch. Kids picked from key latch. Dream lease sagged in them logo tags. Wondering sullenly. Will Tiger ever recover comfortably? Hank Hero's heads on pillows eat. Makes more humans relate. Makes more human mistakes. My humanity places head next to dinner plate. Eat myself without feeding myself. Sometimes retreating inside cell walls. The band simply plays on. Sitting wishing you were here. Next time you're gone, just remember to buy yourself a souvenir. Could you tell me about your experience in uh, bodybuilding? When I was 13, 14, uh, I began wrestling in middle school. And I was actually very overweight. And uh, because my brother and dad lifted weights, that's I started doing it too. And and that's really where it began is from 13 to 14 through 24. That was probably the absolute focus of my life, for better or worse. What what about it? Um, did you did you like? I think. Uh, it was never about looking good for other people or making so that I, I thought that I looked better. It was, I think it was more about the regimented aspect of it. It gave me something to focus on somewhere to put my energies. Uh, as we may talk about later on, I'm a very, very goal oriented person. And so I've really almost upset, I would say obsessively go into certain topics. And so it was just somewhere for me to focus my energy. Was that the first time that you realized that? I think so. Um, just primarily because I was so young. I was 13, 14. That's when people start learning about themselves. Yeah. So I was that awkward stage. Uh, and I, I think, I think you're right. That's probably where I, I learned that about myself. And uh, what made you transition from bodybuilding? I, I don't really know. So I still love to do it. I just like being in the mountains and being more adventurous more than than working out. Uh, so when I moved from Georgia to Washington in 2017, I was, I was still intending to do bodybuilding. Um, until the two, three months before I moved, I, I was full bore still into it. And kind of on that transition period, June, uh, between April and June of 2017, mm-hmm. I was actually going to go into the Navy. And so I had oh, started wow. to, to drop a lot of weight primarily and, and just lose weight for the Navy. Uh, then I moved here and that kind of, that path dissolved for, for I, I think for better. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad thing. It didn't dissolve because I wasn't allowed to go in the Navy. I just chose to go to Washington and that kind of left that behind. Yeah. I see. And what about the experience of bodybuilding? Did you enjoy like was it something specific to bodybuilding or do you think it was just like the universal, the process of getting good at something? 
it's absolutely the process. Uh, I, I don't know if it's that everybody, every teenage boy in particular has, has anger or angst issues, but mine, I definitely had some, some anger issues. I'd never gotten into fights or anything like that, but I, I knew that if I didn't exert myself in a physical way, that energy may come out in a, in a negative manner. And so that was, that was also part of it. Um, but, but the being in, being in the process of it, I, that, that's absolutely what I loved about it. And do you, was what you just touched on in the beginning, was that like a, um, something that was very like thought out from the people who, you know, from being exposed to it and having access to it, or is that just something that you learned on yourself in hindsight? That's a very good question. I think it was something I learned myself. Um, so people that are in kind of the, the bodybuilding world, I would say in the last three, I'm still kind of, kind of in there. I dip my toes into one once in a while because I still have friends in it. So last five to six years, it's become that people as a, as a general consensus have begun to realize it's about the process. If you don't enjoy what you're doing day in and day out, and this, for, this goes with anything in life, if you don't enjoy what you're doing day in and day out, then the ends probably doesn't justify the means in that manner. Because if you're, if you're exerting yourself tirelessly day after day and you just hate it, that one day at the very end where there's a celebration, I don't think it's going to take away all the, the, the lost energy, the effort that was put into it mm. or make up for it. It's something that I was really afraid of um, when I was growing up um, and just being a young adult was someone who was trapped in a job and wasn't able, and they were like a weekend warrior. But what I realized was I was, that was a very specific kind of archetype, but the general um, experience is committing to do something, spending your life, your time, um, getting good at something that's really doesn't, isn't inherently meaningful to you. And like, and, and being in, in, con, in contradiction to what your nature is and not being able to understand or open up and to pursue that nature, you know, being disconnected from who you are, essentially. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of in, internal turmoil that develops out of that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, it's, it's somewhat akin to Two-Face from, mm -hmm. I guess, Batman. <laughs> uh, As and how? Could you elaborate? Uh, it's, it's not a real thought out kind of comparison, but there was, there was Harvey Dent that was kind of the golden child. Mm -hmm. And then there was the other half of him that was pure evil. And it just eventually ripped away at him. And, and no matter how, how good the other side of you is or how much you enjoy that, how much light it brings into your life, that, that darkness may, in the end, envelop you if you can't. Um, either exercise it or get it out or, or come to terms with it in a way that makes it so it doesn't continue to grow. And that, that struggle, that very personal struggle, um, almost like your preference for sports is personal. Um, it's, it's within all of us. I blindly follow them and idolizing them and realize that they're human. And, and in that, there's that lesson that we, we all have these kinds of struggles. And it's like our experience of trying to figure out how to, um, you know, how to, how to be able to support that and how to understand that, you know, and it's, it's interesting that you, you 
find that bodybuilding was a vehicle for you to do that because I've fi- I'm finding that pursuing my own interests have exposed my character in a lot of ways. And it has given my life meaning and purpose where it's been absent. And these voids that I have sometimes terrifying voids, um, are fulfilled in very constructive and positive ways. Like, you know, jujitsu, for instance, like I'm simulating, you know, death. And I could say that in a way that that's like, Oh, you're dramatic, you know, dramatizing it. But it's like, you know, I found myself doing, um, combat jujitsu and training for with a partner and I got really into it. And it's like, now I'm like hitting him really hard and I'm feeling really bad. Cause I'm like, Oh, I'm like, I'm hurting you right now. And I didn't mean to do that. And I've like been crying in the middle of a grappling match, like towards it, because I'm like, wow, I just got to that other side of me where it's like, I was all in and committed. And that was like, what's the difference between that? And like, murder. That's, you know, I'm probably the worst person that has ever been born and also the best person, you know, like a saint that all in one, cause I'm human. Yeah, uh, that's a very apropos point because um, kind of have, having that darkness and sometimes it, it overtakes us. And, and I think it's great that you, did you do, did you, that you do jujitsu, excuse me. Um, it's actually something I've wanted to do for a long time, having a background in wrestling. Uh, for a reason, exactly as you said, it allows you to perhaps exercise those demons in a in a safe, confined, controlled manner. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas even even if you do cross the line with from within yourself and begin to hurt your partner, your sparring partner, usually somebody's around to help you out. Or as long as you're not just going full on street brawl, it's mm-hmm. pretty difficult to hurt them in, in a way that's not um, I just just difficult to truly hurt them. That's what I love because what I found out is, is that these people, I, when I've developed relationships in this atmosphere, you know, like uh, showing up to a class on a, you know, like uh, three days every, every week, you know, for many weeks. And, um, there, I found another level, like my family, I got close with, but we didn't have much shared adversity other than like, you know, inner relationship drama, but like, this kind of adversity, I didn't play much team sports growing up, um, but this kind of adversity um, and environment, this trust that I built with people was almost like working in a restaurant, but even more. Like I got close, so close to these people that I actually felt a sense of belonging and I felt a sense of trust in other people because you, you're right. Like you, you might go over the line because the line's there and how you understand it is, is you make errors, right? And it's about how you... Um, maneuver after those and how you respond to those. And that's what I found socially that people appreciate. And what I learned was we learn a lot through playing games and I never really played a lot of games with people growing up, but now I was like in this intensive game where, you know, sometimes it does feel real, but you don't really get hurt. Like I'm not going to get knocked out. Um, someone could hurt me if they go a little hard, but I could think about it a lot and draw boundaries a lot before that something like that ever happened. Or I have too big of repercussions. Someone's breaking my arm. They might hurt my arm a little. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to roll with that, you know, guy or girl. But that's <laughs> yeah. like, that's how we learn to navigate socially. And I needed a reason or an excuse to do it. And jujitsu was a reason or excuse to do it. You know, I feel like I grew up in a, a very quickly in, almost, in only a year. And I was an adult. Some things that children, I think, might have already experienced. So that, that last line, I, I agree with it. And I, and I also don't agree with it because... <laughs> 
I think historically, um, we, we've been a very physical, like humans are physical beings and that's, that's going away. So people of my generation and younger, they don't have physical adversity. Mm -hmm. And so by, by you having the jujitsu introduced as a physical adversity or just any type of adversity, truly, um, mm -hmm. it's allow you to develop rapidly. And I think as human beings, we need that adversity. Mm -hmm. uh, we need something to fight against and not because it makes us better as human beings, but that's, that's just how we've developed throughout the eons. Mm -hmm. So when that, that void is there, our body begins to ruminate on other things. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we don't, we don't, we don't understand who we are. Like you said, you've kind of found out who you are. You've kind of developed and, and discovered who you are kind of the same way I, I have done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when you moved over to Washington, um, what made you get into hiking? Like, did you have an interest before you, before you moved? I had a slight interest. So I, I grew up in Georgia. I grew up uh, in Lumpkin County, which is the county. Of Ge Georgia has tons and tons of counties. It has the most counties of any state in the U.S., even though is it's not it the biggest. Big, oh, really? What? Yeah, it's a, it's small, it has 170 plus counties. It's, if you look at a map of counties in the U.S., Georgia is just littered with them. Wow. Um, the reason I bring that up is I was very close to the terminus, southern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. However, I had never set foot on the Appalachian Trail. I'd never done any kind of hiking before. I'd hiked Amicola Falls, which is the beginning of the Appalachian, the Southern Appalachian Trail. So ha having done that, like, having moved across the country, I had next to no hiking experience. I, I grew up in the outdoors. I was a, a playful kid. I would go in my backyard in the woods all the time. Uh, the only actually hiking I'd done is I did, uh, I hiked Yosemite Falls with my mom in February of 2016. Uh, other than that, no hiking experience. Wow. So, so when I moved, what got me into it was I moved and I, I didn't have a job and I didn't have a job for 10 weeks after I moved. So I had a lot of free time <laughs> and, and I figured out that I actually spend less money when I'm out hiking or out doing something rather than being at home and not having a whole lot of money because no job, it helped out a lot. Um, so when I, when I moved, I, there were three reasons that I moved. I, I always cite these three reasons. One, I had lived in Las Vegas before and I wanted to get back out West. And so I came back out West and a, the original plan wasn't Washington. Uh, number two, I wanted a different job and I had applied to several jobs before coming. Um, I just hadn't heard back and they were still in the process. And I was just banking on the fact that one of those was going to say yes. And third, I had moved for a woman. Um, oh, really? And so that I'm single now, uh, happily single. <laughs> it's it's kind of cliche to sing that, say that. So it's, it feels weird saying that, but um, <laughs> I, I only say that to say it didn't work out. Um, yeah. And hey, I, think, well, I think for the better, but it, so those are the be, three reasons. Go ahead. Do you, I was going to say, do you just to dig in on that a little bit? Do you say happily single? And um, is that something that's like new for you as being comfortable in that? Or is that, are you've always been comfortable in that place? Very good question. I've always been comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm probably one of the most introverted people in the world. Oh, I, wow. I could literally be by myself 
for the rest of my life and I'd be okay with it. I truly would. Uh, growing up, my mom always said that I would go outside and just play by myself for hours. I'd be playing in the grass, playing in, with sticks and stones. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I make friends very well. I get along with people, but truthfully, I prefer to be by myself. That really lines you up with that whole combination of how you go out into the Cascades and doing a lot of that solo stuff. I tell myself that with like, there's certain activities you could do where the more that you do, um, the less they'll cost you like in the long term, and the more that they'll give back, whether it's like in health and longevity, or maybe, you know, um, you're like building up your ability to cope with life and, and all of that. And, you know, there are, you get a lot out of it. And it's like, so it's all in, in a lot of it's internal. And I would do that all the time. That's how I persuaded myself to buy rock climbing gear. I'm like, well, it's like a thousand dollars. That's probably cheaper than going to the movies every weekend. But truly though, there, there are just certain experiences where if you look at like the Archimedes lever, where you have to do like the little amount, the least amount of effort, I would say time seems better um, for the most, um, most reward, right. Or the mm -hmm. most, you know, um, it's like looking at all these forms of exercises. They're just, it's insane. Even in terms of drugs, like I, you know, I use drugs um, occasionally, but you just looking at exercise, like none of that really, it just costs more calories and you can get like really high off of a runner's high. Right. Or you can go yeah. and experience these beautiful places up in the mountains and, you know, use your whole body to get yourself up there instead of, you know, like a, a mountain bike. And you could look at all these different ways of like reducing costs um, to access these really high, high experiences, like endogenously and, you know, with the landscape and, I think it's, it's cool, but it's wild that you've kind of been on that kick since you were a little kid. When I first started backpacking and hiking and stuff, I had the, the cheapest gear ever. Uh, a lot of it, I had just found somewhere or I had kind of secondhand stuff. Um, and that's, that's honestly not the way to do it, <laughs> but, but, but my whole thing was I wasn't going to let the gear stop me. And I've told that to a lot of people because I, you may have experienced, experienced this too. You, you find quote unquote beginners or people who haven't had a whole lot of experience either by themselves or with other people in the wilderness. And they're like, well, I need these hiking boots. I, I need this jacket. I need this pack. I need this, 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 and this. Uh, and while it's great to have proper things, it really is. It can save your life. It, it shouldn't be stopping people from just taking a step or going on a, a couple minute hike or a couple hour hike. Uh, you don't need to, to go headlong into an overnight trip or several days out in the wilderness. But I, I've met several, several people or, or have encountered several people who, who won't begin be, because of that trepidation. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the way that I, th I think, um, of course, I'm projecting myself onto them. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that the reason that I think that they, they bring that up is because they're, that's their way of coping with it. Thinking like, what. Well, I, they think deep down or they feel deep down that they can't do it. So if I have this other thing, I can do it. Mm -hmm. And they're just waiting to get that one thing before they begin. Um, and so it's kind of a self and self-imposed hurdle mm -hmm. and, and a rationale. Do you, is there, have you found constructive ways for yourself to get over those or to cope with them? Not necessarily. Um, one of my big, I don't know if it's a belief or a philosophy, but something I, I definitely have internalized is you just have to start with things to just go. 
it's the the proverb of a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Yeah. If you, and it's it's beginning with a single step, but it's also taking continuous deliberate action, mm-hmm. and to, and that's what helps people progress. Again, with jujitsu, if if you were to go in on the first day and have a beginner's class, and they taught you just very basic grappling, and that's all you did, and you didn't try and progress every single day or every every time you went in that every, I guess, three times a week. Um, mm-hmm. and you didn't attempt to get better. If you didn't have a deliberate action and take or deliberate effort, then, then you wouldn't get any better. There, there wouldn't be any progress. Regardless of, of what you bring to the table, um, for materials, it's your attention and focus that takes precedent. Almost. I, I believe so. Uh, I've, and it, it can, like, like I mentioned, like great gear and, and great people around you absolutely helps. It really does. But it shouldn't, that shouldn't be the thing that makes you get started or makes you begin something. Um, that shouldn't, shouldn't be the reason of, as to why somebody's getting better. It should be coming from within themselves. Do you carry that over to just everyday lifestyle though and looking at different like substances and then um, also looking at being, being like alone or with people? Like, cause isn't that the same thing with just like life? Shouldn't you be able to like, or not shouldn't, but isn't there a way to navigate life where like you can balance it all. It's all perfect. Despite like being alone or being entrenched with people or, and despite, you know, having, you know, just eating bread and like crappy food, like there's that place where you could just be in the pocket and just, it's all perfect. Wouldn't that be a parallel to that, um, to that initial trepidation and looking at too expensive of gear? Does that make sense or did I lose you? Uh, you kind of lost me. I was, mm-hmm. I, I think what you said makes sense. Yeah. But I wasn't sure if I followed it entirely. Have you, that's, that's uh, fine. Have, yeah, you're good. Have you ever found like that learning about that feeling? And like, you know, I don't have all of the nice gear. I'm afraid to get into this. Do you um, feel like that, that teaches you something about life that has a carryover to your general life? So I guess yes, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I, I do in that we can't just do anything we want at any point in time. We have to develop skills and in particular, I think a mindset um, or an, even an environment, be around the right people or the, or the right circumstances to, to foster improvement in, in all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, so I guess, I don't know if this, this is a, entirely on, on point, but yeah. the, uh, there needs to be something that, that that sparks an interest or sparks something either mm-hmm. either from within yourself or externally that sets you down a path. Mm-hmm. I think does that make sense? That does make sense because sometimes it's a thing where you wonder like that that initial like trepidation or even those feelings of like you know if you're being kept from going into something. How how do you know if it's just something that you don't really want? that much and that there's actually something down the road in your own life that you really do want and that you would if I for. Cause I think about that a lot with people um, who have like not accessed something and the, they, they've expressed to me their life's kind of mad and their life's, you know, has been on that uh, routine of mad and I've been there, but I get in this whole like fixie phony met- mentality where it's like, Oh, you should just do this and it'll make your life happier. And they, you know, they might try or they might not and they drop out. And I'm like, Oh, it's because you need to be more disciplined. And it's like, yes and no, maybe it's all these things that line up in their own personal fucking experience. And that's why I can't be like, do this because 
that's why I like recreation where it's all this open-ended bullshit where it's like all these things could achieve the same result. It's just like, go and find your thing. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. Cause I struggle with that. Cause I'm like, jujitsu's work for me. So I'm, I proselytize, but jujitsu doesn't work for everyone. And you know, they're not consistent. I could be like, well, you got a problem. And it's like, well, maybe, but it's not a problem of you not understanding the love of jujitsu. It's you just maybe have a different disposition to something else and you just don't know it yet. Uh, I, I love what you said. Cause you're absolutely true. Cause I, I've been down, I've been a, a personal trainer and trying to help people improve their lives through health and wellness. And sometimes people just come to you because they want to be told what to do. Sometimes their doctor said, you got to be here. You got to go to a trainer. You got to get, you got to learn how to, how to move better and, and eat better. Um, and those are the kinds of people who, who don't, it doesn't, it doesn't click with them. So they don't improve. But if there's some, like if it's, it's an internal spark, like I kind of, I mentioned earlier, and like, like you mentioned that, that thing for you may, may be jujitsu. And so it worked for you. And I think as, as human beings, we think if it works for me, it's going to work for my friends and family. It's going to work for everybody else. And that's a kind of an, I think that's a natural thing. It's not a bad mm -hmm. thing at all, but you're absolutely yeah. right. Not everything works for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I used to be somebody who would be like, oh, you're depressed. Just, just mm -hmm. put a smile on your face and fake it till you make it and, and exercise more. And it, that does not work for everybody. It yeah. really doesn't. Um, and, and I have, I have friends and family that are on anti-anxiety, anti-depressant or anti, anti-anxiolytics and uh, antidepressants. And for a long time, and it was, is immaturity. I thought, well, you don't need that shit, but they do. It helps. It helps tremendously for the right people. And, and so kind of down, down that line, I think it's, if we want, I hate, I hate saying if, if we want to help somebody because it, it implies that everybody needs help. Yeah. But if, if somebody does want help and, and we're offering help to them, then I think it's up to us not to just, like you said, proselytize what works for us because what works for us may work for them, but it may not. Mm -hmm. So it's just be up to us to, to, to decipher them and, and try to put them down the path uh, of what does work for them because everybody has their thing. And yeah. something that, that works for somebody else isn't going to work for me. I may think it's destructive, mm -hmm. but it may be the greatest thing in their life. And it's not, it's not, I don't think it's up to me to say what is, good and isn't good for somebody else because that's not my experience but what is valuable is um i think listening to people's experience in a passive way which is because it's very interesting like even right now like i genuinely want to talk to you i genuinely want to know what it's like for you you know in life and like and all these things that, that you've done and you've liked and figured out about yourself like it's a wonderful thing to listen to and there are some cues that i can get before i ever talk to you that i could see that oh you'd be an interesting person for me to talk to and for some reason i'm you know i gravitate towards that i have no idea why like i might be able to name things but i'm driven by i don't know maybe my subconscious or just some weird shit in my life and and i think that's where the meat and potatoes are it's because like i'm learning from you right now you know and even though you're not like we're not have fulfilling those roles really and I, and I think that's what, that's something that I, I really liked, even with people who came from really difficult backgrounds where it's like, you know, instead of telling me what to do, I just want to hear what your story is, you know, and then you allow the other person to do whatever the fuck they want with it, you know? Absolutely. Uh, 
I, I absolutely love hearing other people's stories. And like you said, not even in a, in a learning environment or a learning aspect, it's just, I'm fascinated about other people's perspectives and their experience. Um, like everybody hates that first day of a class or a, of a training of some sort where the instructor's like, well, let me tell you about myself. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. Uh, I want to know all about them because I'm like, what, what made you be here? What brought you to this point in time? Because we're not static beings. We're, we're ever evolving. We're dynamic. We're always changing. And so I'm curious about people's, people's backgrounds. And along those lines, like you said, learning in a passive manner um, from people's experiences, one of the things I almost always listen to when I'm hiking or doing my stuff out in the wilderness is, is audio books. And most of the time, it's a biography of some kind. Yeah. Um, I prefer autobiographies read by the author. Yeah. Um, because they can emphasize the points that are important to them and it makes it, it makes it much more, more deep and meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say 75 to 80% of, of what I listen to or, or digest through, through audio is, is biographies and, and nonfiction works because wow. I'm fascinated by, by other people. Ooh. What percentage of the time on average do you spend when you're out, like, you know, hiking, um, listening to audio? So this is probably a shocking one for a lot of people. It's probably 99%. Yeah. And that, and that doesn't always mean that I'm actively listening to it. There'll be 20, 30 minute sections where I'm, I'm zoned into something else, but I'll have one earbud in and something is, is there. And so if, and maybe it's entirely different if um if I'm just walking down a trail or trail running for five six miles, that that requires a kind of monotony that that I'd rather my brain focus on something other than my feet just spinning. Yeah. Whereas if I'm actually doing some technical rock climbing or some scrambling, I'm much more focused on where my hands and feet are at, and I don't I don't I'm not hearing at all what's in my ear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's but it's still going. It's one of my favorite places to be able to to digest. Probably one of the only places to digest like audiobooks. Um, and it, and I love it. I love a long run for that reason, or really, it's just like a long hike. Um, it's just it's awesome. And you know the way to be able to exert myself while I listen to that because it's sometimes harder for me to sit still. It's it really just keys in, you know. And I've I've learned a lot from that, and I still get to go within my own self. Uh, what are some of your favorite, what's like two of your favorite uh, autobiographies? So some, that, one that comes to mind uh, in part, cause I finished it. Uh, I think two weeks ago, I finished it. It's Trevor Noah's born a crime. Mm. And uh, that was actually, it wasn't recommended to me directly, but uh, a gentleman named Mark Griffith uh, was, was reading it or listening to it. And, and he mentioned that it was one of his, the best books he's, he's, he's digested before. And so, uh, I, I, I look up to Mark. And so I, I don't, I don't know if I, I idolize him, but I look up to him very highly with high regard. And so if he says something like that, I, I immediately went and got it. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a striking book. Uh, kind of, I don't think this is a spoiler alert, mm-hmm. but the, the book is called born a crime and Trevor Noah was born in South Africa during the apartheid Ooh. and his father was white and his mother was black. And so he was literally born a crime. He was not supposed to exist. 
And I, and honestly, like, like recounting that it's not my story to recount, but just saying that kind of gave me chills because I can't, I can't fathom a world like that. It just, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's tragic. It's truly tragic. So Trevor Noah's born a crime, fabulous book. Um, if you listen to the audio version, he narrates it. It's, it's spectacular. Um, second one that comes to mind. So, so two come to mind. So I'm going to give, I'm actually going to give, yeah, go for <laughs> I'm going to give four options. Um, two are autobiographies and two are just uh, nonfiction works. First, mm-hmm. the autobiographies, uh, Sky Below, the book is called Sky Below by Scott Pirozinski. I don't know how to spell his last name. <laughs> um, he's an astronaut. Uh, and so he, he narrates it, Scott Perizinski's Sky Below, and then also Scott Kelly's Endurance. And Ooh. Scott Kelly is also an astronaut. Uh, so Scott and Mark Kelly are twins. They're both astronauts. And Scott Kelly was one of the astronauts who spent more than a year in space continuously on the space station. Wow. And so it's kind of his, his it goes back and forth between his upbringing and his experience during that year. Ooh, that's cool. Um, and, and it was kind of serendipitous how he became the astronaut to be in space for a year. It's, he, he says that it's a coincidence that he was chosen, uh, and his brother is the genetic control. So they, they're, it's a science experiment because it's comparing, um, one twin who's in space for a year and one twin who's not in space for a year. What? Even though they're both astronauts. Whoa. Um, and so he, he says it's coincidence, and I believe him, but, uh-huh. uh, but who, who knows what NASA was thinking. Wow, that's uh, crazy. And, and I, I didn't grow up with a whole lot of twins in my life, and so this was, it was fascinating when he told me that I think, I'm, I'm probably getting the location of this wrong, but he has a uh-huh. birthmark on his left or right butt cheek, uh-huh. and his twin, his Mark, his, has a, a birthmark on the exact opposite side of his body. Whoa. Yeah. And so what, what even blows my mind more is that Scott, the one who was in space for a year, ended up getting prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. And then his twin ended up getting prostate cancer in the exact opposite side of his prostate. No apparently. way. And so I, I don't, of course, it could be a complete coincidence, but it's yeah. fascinating nonetheless. That's um, so interesting. But so, so Scott Pirozinski's Sky Below and uh, Scott Kelly's endurance. And did did he have any like physical like atrophy from being up there in the space station? Uh, th- or did it talk about that at all? It talked it definitely talked about it. Uh, they're they're forced to exercise with resistance oh, exercise and cardiovascular each day. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say forced, but it's part of their job. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it it actually he could he's he would say that if he didn't do it for a day, they could feel themselves getting weaker in just a day. Because That's of the atrophy. Easy. Um, and then two, two not or two works of fiction that aren't um aren't biographies. And I've I've listened to all all of these except for Trevor's Trevor Noah's book mm-hmm. at least three times. Um so the other two, the first one is The National Parks. And it's written by Ken Burns. Ken Burns is a a documentary documentarian. Uh, I've actually never watched any of his documentaries other than the national parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but they they adapted his doc. It's like a I want to say it's a ten to nine hour documentary oh, to a book. So- it's it's a, it's very very long. It's tremendous wow. too. It has lots of lots of great visuals. His work, um, so it gets awesome. just, yeah, and so it just goes through the entire history of the national park system. Uh, and so I'm actually, I think I have four hours left on that one, and I think it's it's a 19 hour not 19 hour long oh. uh, audio book. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, the the last one I'm going to talk about it's something that isn't going to resonate with a lot of people. It's much more niche to me, and I don't want to put people down by saying they wouldn't understand it, but unless they have a very scientific background, they probably won't. Um, it's a book called Making the Atomic, or The Making of the Atomic Bomb. Oh, whoa. And uh, so my, my career is nuclear science. Oh, and, that's uh, cool. And so I've, since I can remember, one of the very first uh, book projects I ever did, I think it was in fourth grade, was on the Manhattan Project, which is a wow. project that accepted the, the atomic bomb. And uh, so in early high school, I wanted to be a nuclear engineer in the Navy, ninth and 10th grade. And then bodybuilding took over and I wanted to do physical therapy instead. Um, and then several years later, come full circle, I'm back in the nuclear field. Um, and I'm doing a master's in, in nuclear engineering right now. But uh, so the making of the atomic bomb is a, it's either, I think it's 36 hours long. Wow. It's, it's long. Uh, and for, for me, it's fascinating because it, it tells a very, very deep and rich history of the atomic bomb, mm-hmm. but also highlights the fact of, of how rapid the development of this, this thing was. And not only that is, and anytime you say nuclear power now or nuclear engineering or anything nuclear, there's a negative stigma to it. It's, mm-hmm. it's practically inherent in mm-hmm. us. Um, and it, it kind of highlights the fact that under different circumstances, if, if the discovery of nuclear fission hadn't happened in the same time we had a world war, mm-hmm. we probably, we, I can't say we probably, we may not have the same outlook we have on it. Because statistically speaking, it is the safest form of energy production by far. Um, But things like Chernobyl and Fukushima happen and it gets a terrible light on it. Even though very, very few people were harmed during those disasters. Mm -hmm. Um, And the book doesn't talk about those. It it only goes to the making of the thermonuclear weapon, the hydrogen bomb in the 50s. But um, it's it's a very technical book and yeah, uh, I, I actually recommended it to my dad that after the first time I listened to it, and he got like an hour or two in. He's like, he's like, I can't listen to this. It's <laughs> it's just going, it's just going right over my head. Wow! And, uh, and so I was, I was kind of bummed about that because I, I was like, oh, that's so cool. It's just like all of science culminating to this thing. Um, but it's, it's a very technical thing. Does it describe like the the science behind the nuclear bomb? Is that where the technicality comes into play? Yeah. 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 Uh, so this, I wouldn't say that's the technicality of, that comes into play because actually how it operates isn't, isn't too technical. Getting it to happen is very technical, but oh, the wow. process behind it isn't. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, you, it's, hard, it's hard to just jump. The, kind of the purpose of this book was, was everything that led up to the bomb. Mm-hmm. And so when we discovered nuclear fission in 1939, we couldn't just start there and say, oh, 
because we can now we know that we can split an atom or atom split we can make a bomb from it so it goes from like discovery of of x-rays by by a scientist by the name of Röntgen in 1896 all the way through um 19 the 1950s wow that's really cool i'm I'm gonna have to pick that one up that sounds awesome I, i think it's great I've been interested. I was interested in it when I would learn about it in like geology. I think it was geology um, class in high school. And, but it was boring because I was behind a book and the books, there was just like thick textbooks. And that's kind of all that it ever was. And there was like one time some glowing rock that we had. And, and that was a focal point. And I was like, ah, oh, that's kind of cool. But like, you know, I've heard someone making like a nuclear reactor in their basement mm-hmm. or like certain science, like that would be, if I could like, you know, <laughs> treat it like something like that where i could actually do just anything tangible at all would be interesting you know absolutely something something more engaging yeah like citizen science like the citizen scientists are just such a fascinating topic like even in terms of chemistry i really wish they didn't out like we didn't have that whole drug thing because like those chemistry sets that they used to give to those kids were fucking awesome you can make like oh yeah form and shit <laughs> yeah so uh my, my bachelor's degree is in chemistry and, oh wow! Uh, I, I always, I always, it always remarks on me how, like, our first day of organic chemistry too, uh, he, our professor was throwing stuff up on the board. He's like, "This is how you make meth," and it's not a hard <laughs> process. Yeah, it's just, it was just funny how he's like, "Well, these are." He was trying to show us real world examples to to engage us, to make us to to be interested in it. And it wasn't like, "This is how you make meth. This is what you need." It, it wasn't like delving into it, trying to engage us to make meth. It was just mm-hmm. showing, well. This is how you make aspirin. This is how you make ibuprofen. This is how you make meth. This is how you make all these other, other pharmaceuticals and other other things that are critical to our lives. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying meth. Meth is not critical to <laughs> yeah. our lives. But <laughs> it keeps you going. But, That's but how you hike. Yeah, That's how you just keep going. Yeah. Oh, sorry. What were you saying? No, that was that was it. No. Um, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it was just. You mentioned something that to engage you to make you learn, and, and that's what he did on that first day. Oh, that's really cool. And, and so, I think that's a hallmark, hallmark, hallmark of a great teacher. Yeah, it, it really is because, the, like, the whole point of doing anything is is because you have some innate passion towards it. Well, not the whole point, but with learning, anyways, it's that spark, like you're saying. And you to like try to force it because you have to. It only goes so far, and it's pretty oppressive in the end. And it's like, why the hell are you doing this? But if you could like impress upon someone, you know, why people fall in love with this why people fall in love with math and you know how math can be a type of language what programming its capabilities are like there there is a reason why people have decided to do it as adults mm-hmm. and there's that's something that you can show them and like i even have that with kiddos all the time it's like hey like running is like can be really really fun like let's go and you know we could race each other we can go and we can go on this trail run thing and we can feel exhilarated like and you, some adults would just be like you know I'm, I'm too old to play in that way. Right. And like, um, and just, just to have those, those kind of role models are important. I forgot where I was going with that. But. Right. But it, it's, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's sad is the right word. I just can't think of the proper word, but it's, yeah. it's sad to see, like you mentioned adults being like, I can't play in that way, but, mm-hmm. but why not? Like, yeah. Like, uh, we, and I always, everybody were kind of remarked on this and, and that as we were kids, like I never wanted to be a grown up, or I always want to be a grown up, or everybody thinks that grown ups are boring. Mm-hmm. And, 
and I'm I'm technically a grown up, and I, yeah. I have a lot of friends that are grown ups, and they're not boring people. Uh, not even by by kid standards, they're not boring. But it's I th- I think in part it's because our generation or or the younger generations have have more freedom or they're more likely to be free or or mm-hmm. express themselves in the ways that that they like, whereas like baby boomers and generation. I think it's X between baby boomers and Gen Y. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they were workers who, as a product of the U.S. education system, were designed to work in factories to do. Uh, it's not menial jobs, but it's yeah. jobs that are repetitive tasks that that aren't engaging. That they don't have a, a fulfillment factor associated with them. Mm-hmm. And so that's when you get adults that are. Charlie Brown's teacher, my, 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 yeah. just laissez-faire and, and meh, like you mentioned. And that's interesting because I have um, someone who's like close to me um, now, and he he's my son's grandfather on his mom's side, but he's like, you know, he's in his 60s, and he has these things where he, with like alcoholism and like um, but being able to, what is that? being able to like have your life and still do it in that way. But for many, many, many years and like just you know, to openly have a conversation with him within recent time where he's like talking about, you know, spending a decent portions of his life self-medicating and like, you know, coming up for air and then finding and having the introspection to realize that he was like self-medicating and he has these voids and then, you know, getting pulled back down after like trying to quit and coming up and repeating these cycles and like, He's found biking, you know, he really liked to bike when he was a kid, but now he's really liking it and he's doing eight miles a day on his weekends and he wants to do this one that goes to like two towns over that's 24 miles and I think I'm going to take him to do it. He thinks he has to prepare, but I'm like, you could do 24 miles and like a snap, man. And, and like he, in his own language, like it's not necessarily mine, but you know, it's once again, it's the process kind of the same, just different words where he's like, it's my way of like connecting with God. And I'm like, oh, whoa. He's like those moments to where I'm just pedaling. He doesn't listen to music. He's like, he's like, once the monotony kind of I set into the monotony, um, then I like get to connect with my thoughts. And then there's this other place where I, I could just be like free. Like, and it's this like, he was articulated his version of heaven as a moment in time to where he's in that place of like nirvana or bliss. And I was like looking at that and I'm like, wow, that that's like some of the highest level of introspection that I've seen him have in like the 12 years that I've ever known him. And I always wish that I could like him or, you know, his daughter and his, uh, even his wife, their, their family predicament. I always wish I could like help in some way. And I had to come to terms that, you know, they're just going to go on their own path, but I'm here to talk and to exp- do things with, you know, and to see him come through that was like, wow, it'd be fun to go on a long bike ride with him that's that's beautiful truthfully that uh that somebody of any any age regardless their age kind of pulls themselves out of a well and is able to to find something like you we were talking about earlier they they, he found something that makes him i don't want to just say better but makes it so he can he's able to connect with himself and and like he said to connect with with his with god yeah um and it's it's something that that's super meaningful to him and so he he strives to to achieve that and it's that's tremendous it's an interesting look because they're very like when i met him it's like he got upset when i was going to college 
which was interesting because I had my son. Uh, I had my son when I was in high school, but um, he wanted me to go to work. And it was just like weird thing where like you got to go to work and you got to provide for your family. And what I realized was that these are miners from Wisconsin or Wyoming and like their whole family is. And they're part of this like a it's like Native American, like mixed race and stuff like that. So I'm not going to attribute like a racial demographic, but like this culture where it was just very different. And I've seen it. I've seen the logging communities and I'm not trying to generalize, but like it's this this kind of thing you were described. It's very industrial culture where it was like work and provide for my family and then come home, rest, relax, take care of like very within myself, like father, sometimes distant. Once again, I don't, I'm not trying to generalize, but it's just, it's interesting. Cause I listen to people who are a little older than me in their thirties and forties. And like, there's like a big shield between them and their father. And like, there's this whole provider mentality and not much like talking about these things, like not your feelings and all that, but just not much introspection. And I, I don't understand it because I could do anything but that. Like, I don't know how the hell you do it. I'm like, I feel like a pansy. I can't do that work. Like, I just don't want to. Like, I want to do something more challenging. <laughs> I don't, I, but that's not to someone else. That's just me, like, personally in that, in my own personal way. Like, I don't mean to denigrate any kind of position. So my dad was the greatest, I think, the greatest dad that, anybody's ever had truthfully uh, I think b both my parents um, I don't think they could have done a more perfect job as parents uh, so they they weren't representative of that group mm -hmm. uh, I work with an, a, uh, some older generational people that can, can be like that but but in general I don't know if it's because of the particular job that the roles that we have mm -hmm. but the majority of the people that are older are down to earth, tremendous salt of the earth people. Uh, and so honestly, kind of like you were saying is you, you didn't have a whole lot of exposure to that, that working monotonous class. And, and I didn't either. Um, mm -hmm. And so what, what I am pulling from and you maybe too, is, is kind of that stereotype that like you were saying that generalization um, of not, not putting somebody else down, but, but that's apparently the way it was is, as you clock in, you clock out and after 35 years of service, you get the golden watch yeah. with the same company. And, and I think you, you may have mentioned it earlier, but I couldn't, I could never imagine working for a single company for 35 years or do, I guess I could work for the same company, but, but not the same exact thing for 35 years. Yeah. I, I can't comprehend that. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, and, mm -hmm. And I, I can only imagine that doing that, something like that, um, something that I think is soul sucking may not be for somebody else, but something that is soul sucking for 35 years, I can imagine that would, would make somebody very jaded, very reserved, very wanting to escape their everyday life when they're not at work. Yeah. That brings me back to that, that experiment with the mice and cocaine where they, like they, give the mice cocaine and do it all the time until it dies. And then they try to redo the experiment and they give the mice like a hamster or they redo the experiment. And then they try to, they change from variables, give the mice other mice, give it the hamster wheel, things to socialize, things to play with. And it's like, looks, evaluates cocaine, looks at it, takes some, leaves it alone. Doesn't ever go back for it yeah. again. Doesn't strive for that. And that's what I was talking about with these activities. Like there's these, 
things. Uh, there's these obviously we are made, we are drugs, like, you know, and it's our relationships to these chemicals. It's not the drugs themselves or it's not whether it within you or without you, it's merely your relationship with them. But it's interesting that some parts of our lives or there's some people, you know, even, um, for all different periods of time are in these destructive patterns where they're, you know, they're reaching, whether endogenous or exogenous, because food is, could arguably be another way to tap into the whole like internal feel good feelings, you know? Um, and people get caught up in that. But what I find, like when I absolve myself of drugs, I found that I would have food, you know, I'd struggle with food cravings and I'm like, Oh, I'm not better than people who are using drugs. And then I work on the food cravings and then, you know, I find myself sometimes with exercise or I get super megalomaniac and obsessive. And it's like, oh, I'm not better than you who eat and sit around. Like, I'm just me and we're human. Like, Absolutely. We all we all have our vices. Um, and that's that makes I think that's what makes somebody who is like a monk that much more commendable in the eyes of society is they don't seem to have vices. Yeah. But that's not necessarily true. And they, they probably would, would say that they do have vices. But, but as, as you mentioned, it's that relationship that we have with the things around us. Um, like I, I, don't, I don't drink. I don't use any kind of drugs, uh, recreational drugs. And it's not because I think that I'm better than anybody else. And I don't judge other people that do. I can I can be around people that drink all the time. I'm around people that smoke weed all the time, um, and I, I don't care. That's just not my relationship with with those substances. Yeah. But I absolutely have an addictive personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would I'd be the first I'd be the first person to say that. I, particularly during bodybuilding, I had a horrendous relationship with food, and for years I I had one after, and I I would say I still do. Yeah. But. But my my addiction now is is like going to the gym or, or exercising, and it's still an addiction. And people have been like, "Well, that's a great addiction." I'm like, "Yeah, no. <laughs> some people it's it's great, but some people go so far over where they uh, get some kind of ailment, or maybe it, it bleeds over and into the relationship with food, and they become anorexic or bulimic. Uh, Miss out so on all the social are, stuff. Yeah." So there's all these, these dichotomies of, of what like something that maybe like look good on the surface may not be, or, or something that's bad. Like if <laughs> I don't want to say cocaine is great, I've never mm-hmm. used it, but but it doesn't mean that it's, it's inherently bad. There, some people may benefit from it. Yeah. Uh, there there are there are things that I believe are inherently bad. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you yeah. mentioned you mentioned something like meth. I don't know if there are great uses for meth. Fighter pilots and people in World War II may disagree with us. And I've looked into it too with the meth because, like, just having people in my life who like struggle with that, and I'd like have these disposition. I'm like, well, kind of got curious. I'm like, well, because there's a thing that happened in my school where they they showed you that this is your brain on meth, or this is a normal brain. It was like a CAT scan or whatever, and it's like then this is your brain on meth and it shows lots of lights for the regular person and very dim brain. And what you realize is, is that with a little bit of research, it's a standard deviation of the brain. And it was like, fuck you. Why don't you just tell me the truth? The truth is though, is with, um, methamphetamines, um, you actually have autophagy and your body will break itself down. Even if you were to use meth in once a month. And I got that from, um, yeah, just digging through studies. Cause I, I want to know, like, 
you know, evaluate what, what is the drug. And like, that's even when I can, my conversation, with my own child, my child's young, but just talking about like, there's some things out there that can harm you. That might be inherently pleasurable. You have a cake, you eat lots of cake. It's like, you can have lots of inflammation. There could be lots of consequences. There's, then there's other things that like, you don't want to drink poison. Right. Um, and there's, these are like drugs out there that are like that. Like you have to be aware of that. And when you see people using that, you know, you just, you just be cautious because, you know, it could lead to this and this. And it's, uh, it's interesting because I try to come away from it because I've seen relationships like this, this thing where like, you know, I don't, people hide what they do from other people like closet users. Right. And in the end of it, the reason why I don't want you to do those things is not as my, my little son. I mean, like we're talking like adults now, right. Or teenagers even is because I love you and I don't want you to hurt yourself. But now we have a disconnect of communication and now you're hiding things from me. And it's because I love you and I don't want you to be what you are if you are that. And like, that was always my problem with it, with it was like at the very end of it, like, who are you and what are you doing? You know? And like, I want to know that. And I want to be able to be there for that and communicate like why I don't use certain things, you know, cause you don't look at like alcohol in some absurd way, but you look at, you don't look at coffee in some absurd way, but everything else it's like, what are you doing? And it's like, can we talk about this? Like just a little bit, you know? So along those lines, uh, on a, on a personal note is, is I don't smoke, uh, whether it's marijuana, like weed or cigarettes, mm-hmm. but I go through phases of where I chew nicotine gum. Oh, wow. And, uh, and if, and you have a, a question right off the bat. Yeah. I was just going to say, is like, do you have it? Is it really easy to, um, to be disciplined with it? Cause I quit smoking and I'm thinking about using that in a very controlled an instrumental way because yeah so within human variability science says if it from one to two milligrams a day is non-habit forming Mm -hmm. and if you look into nicotine as a substance itself it's actually a very very good substance for your body um there are all i think it it can lower your blood pressure (sighs) it's been a while since i've i've really looked into it but i would use it because it, it makes you focused it increases your focus, increases um, lipid, like fat lipolysis, so lipid oxidation within your body. It's actually a mild thermogenic to burn burn a little bit of fat uh, in conjunction with caffeine. And so along those same lines, just because you're I'm chewing nicotine gum, people are like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, well, actually, if you if you look at it, there's there's all this stuff that said it's not bad for you with a controlled mm-hmm. manner, um, and again it's it's definitely a, a dose thing, and like you, like you mentioned, a piece of cake not so bad, a whole cake every day you're gonna probably have some issues. Yeah. So and, it was just it was interesting how you how you mentioned that, and and that's what came to mind for me is that people have a stigma around smoking and nicotine, um, and people, I. I, I don't hate this relation, but I, it irks me. People are like you're like the epitome of health because I'm like in health and wellness, and uh, I, I'm very consistent and controlled in what I eat. And then I chew nicotine gum every once in a while, and they're like, well, "What are you doing?" There's a there's a disconnect, and their their brain explodes. Yeah. So couldn't you draw this out and say that this is the pitfalls of ideology, and this is the reflection of 
our very human tendency to fall into very rigid ideologies and operate out of stigma, stigmatizing things. And I would say it's like very inefficient to have a very concise opinion about everything in your entire life. So it kind of makes sense that the brain does that. But what are your thoughts on that? Exactly. Uh, we, we, stereotypes are a thing for a reason. We, we have these generalities for a reason. They're, they're protective mechanisms. We have ideologies, whether how we see somebody else or see ourselves, because it, it helps us fit into a mold or helps us think, well, that person has that ideology. So they're going to be that way. I, I, I should be able to expect what they're going to be like. Mm-hmm. And generally, you're probably right. But there are differences and everybody's unique. So much so that you can't, you can't make a computer program that defines a person. Mm-hmm. Um, even how, even with how intricate computer programming can be nowadays, there's just too many intricacies within a human being. Um, I was going to say something else along the lines of your question, but I kind of spaced me. Uh, okay. the- but oh, about the stigmas, and so like we we have these stigmas, and they're protective mechanisms. Um, but and it's and it would be entirely inefficient and impractical to to take every nuance into account with every single person you encounter. Um, it, and to an extent that is our duty as, as compassionate human beings is to think about what their experiences are trying to understand somebody else, but it, it's very hard to do. It's not a natural thing. So, uh, go ahead. Do you, do you have any advice that is that you've just used for your own self that has helped for that? Or if you've had that, that's, that's a big question. I wish, yeah. I wish presidential candidates or politicians could be asked that question mm-hmm. and to see what the response would be. I, I wish that there was an actual um, something that was addressed where that this is something that's fundamental to learning because this is part of the human behavior in the intern. And I'm not saying that schools, I used to think schools should, but I kind of get worried now because when you put a committee in the hands of that, Things get a little weird sometimes because they can get squirrely in how you think other children should learn. And it's like very mm-hmm. indoctrinating. Um, but like someone, there's some teaching that's, yeah, it's kind of not there. And I don't know who's responsible for it because that's the most important thing that I try to think about myself. And it's not not just stigmas, but like certain things that I have to, you know, um, to remove to be disciplined and regimented about there's certain things inside of me that are not, I have to be suspicious of. And, and I think that's because I'm a person, right? Like I would eat the whole fucking cake, man. Yeah. (laughs) I'm with you. Among many other Uh, things, right? (laughs) Just going to rampage. Yeah. Uh, eating rampage. (laughs) It's, it's hard to, to be prescriptive with how to understand other people. And, and if I were, like you asked me that question, what would I recommend or how would I go about trying, trying to teach that or learn, learn that to somebody else? Mm -hmm. Um, I would think just being in more diverse environments. Uh, I I think everybody at some point in their life should move away from home. Mm -hmm. Um, they should move away from somewhere that's even close to home or even remotely like their home because then they're exposed to people that aren't like themselves. And when we're exposed to people that aren't like ourselves, I, I think we, we inherently or in, in that more naturally understand that they're not like me. So 
not everybody is like me. So there's something different. Well, and they think, well, what's different about them? Can I ask them? Can I engage with them to understand what is different? Um, or you just have people who are extremely obstinate and bigoted and hate, hate, hateful that, that think if they're not like me, they're wrong. Yeah. Um, that's the other side of the, the terrible other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I grew up in a place where that's very much the case. I grew up in a small redneck hobunk Georgia, North Georgia woodsy town. Um, and I'm not, I'm not really proud of that at all because I've, I've seen things that have happened there that are, that aren't, that just shouldn't be happening. And, and by getting out, by living in Atlanta, by living in Las Vegas and, and going back to my parents, my parents never indoctrinated us or instilled in us any certain belief system, they, they let us be human beings and explore ourselves. And, and they were always hospitable to any, anybody and everybody. And so I learned from them how to be tolerant, truthfully, in addition to, to moving out and, and being around other people that are different from myself. Um, and so I think just encountering Something different is, is what's important in that aspect. And, and unless we decide to do that, it's, it's probably not going to happen, un- unfortunately. And like you said, you can't just tell somebody, well, we're going to put diversity in your life or we're going to make you go somewhere where you're going to be uncomfortable. Like, I, I speak, what I mean that is a, a school is, is very hard-pressed to do that. Because is it the school's responsibility? Is the is it the parent's responsibility? It almost comes down to the the sex the sex ed question. Yeah. Well, I don't want my kid learning sex ed at a school. I want to tell them that, but then that parent never ever thinks of telling their kids about sex or how to protect themselves. So it's like, well, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, kid. Yeah, exactly. So would you rather the school do it, or because the parent's not being responsible enough and and that's that's judgmental saying that they're not being responsible enough to to educate their own children. I find though that um, what's more interesting is to provide um, the opportunity. Or not more interesting. Sorry. What's interesting is is to provide the opportunity for people to meet that need in a third party system, and wh- whether that's through extracurricular. Because this is where I got with like jujitsu and all these other things. And where I'm like, let's introduce this in the school. I work with like physically aggressive kiddos. It's like, hey, you know what the best thing for people who are really aggressive are is doing aggressive play. Like you don't think so, but it's really good. And here's like a lot of research to back that. And it's like, Meh, because in this environment it has to be very controlled, very regimented and very like, pretty standardized. And you have to go jump through all these hoops. But if you're able to, you know, have these like private offerings with, you know, public resources that you can as an individual allocate. You're just more merely the person who allocates these resources to these things that meet your child's needs. Then you would have this like free market system that would, you know, like jujitsu gyms are rampant. They make lots of money. Rock climbing gyms are rampant here, like that are meeting these needs or, you know, like they have that in like Denmark where they have clubs apparently. And the clubs are like, I got a friend, um, uh, Terry Sanchez and, He's got like this Indian uh, club, you know, uh, company where they make Indian clubs. Uh, Really cool. But he's a kettlebell guy. And apparently you can like go to school and be a kettlebell dude. And there's like 
a clubhouse or like a place like a, like a YMCA, but not because it's not just exercise. And it's like, you know, they have all these different things there and you can go in and do them and you can learn them. And it's like a part of the community. And it's like there's so much access to recreation. It's integral into the community. It's here. There's it's a disconnect because it's very that industrialized kind of environment. Like I heard a Russian dude where he I he was working for some tech thing in um, Seattle and he was doing um, he wanted to do like programming, but he worked on the assembly line. Uh, he told me that he had to move. He liked his home country, not advocating for that. Um, because when he had to move, um, he would rely on his neighbors. And when he had to rely on his neighbors, he um, had, was building those relationships because they would ask for favors and exchange those. But here he has to, he hires a moving company. And he wasn't advocating for like communism or anything like that. But what he was saying was, is it's just like work home. And I don't really like anyone that I work with. So where am I going to develop these like, you know, relationships? And I feel really isolated. And that's where I'm like, nerd alert. Um, like here's meetup doc or not meetup.com. Yeah. Meetup. And there's an app, there's an app and it has all these different things. Like there's a lot of private things that are putting groups of people meeting together. I mean, maybe not now, but um, <laughs> like even with this hiking thing, you, you can put out on a Facebook group. Hey, I want to go do this. And people will sometimes teach you like it's not, but it's not, no one was taught these resources. Perhaps they weren't even available when they're kids or when you enter our country. Like these are the meat and potatoes of our, of our society, in my opinion, because it's the glue that holds us together beyond, you know, economics. I, I think that's like you just said, that's such an underrated aspect of, of what holds, holds people together. And, and, and it's critical to to physically be with one another, which is difficult now. But it's it's like you mentioned, it's integral in in a society because we we figure out that people are like us. There are other people who share our interests, and that's that's our group, and that's who we depend upon, or or we we like to be around. And, and in the case of your friend, that's his neighbors or, or who he depended on to help him move. Whereas here, he just hired somebody that could care less who he is as a human being could care less anything other than uh, give me your money. We'll move your shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that there is a, there's a big disconnect there. And uh, I think that we, we as human beings we're, we're social creatures and that's the only reason we've survived because we're, we're weak, we're slow. Um, pretty much any other animal yeah. can kick our yeah. butts. We're all soft, <laughs> but fleshy. But yeah, we're, we're, little meat bags uh, but something like like wolves wolves go in packs humans go in packs we're able to congregate and, and overcome and use problem solving and and our numbers to to make it so that we can overcome these these other the other obstacles mm-hmm. and that that absolutely translates from back in the day when they had to slaughter mammoths to to nowadays we're not attacking animals physically but we can problem us all. We can bounce ideas and troubleshoot from off of one another to figure out how to progress, how to overcome a, a mental hurdle or an emotional hurdle or any kind of hurdle in our life. We can have a support group around us that helps bolster us. And I, I find that with that whole, um, with like experiencing different kinds of cultures and things, what I've heard from previous guests in my own experience curious to hear yours about that 
um, these shared experiences where you have a shared recreational adversity, right. Through sport or whatever, um, or even art that, that oftentimes is when you have like a, an ability to identify with these group of people based on an interest. And that's where you start transcending these boundaries and you can learn, you know, without even leaving your town, for instance, um, as long as you're in a town that has a lot of cultures, you know, um, you can learn a lot and you get exposed to those things. You get exposed to like, I was in, when I did jujitsu, um, I was ignorant towards people who were really re devoutly religious because I thought they'd be annoying and like, and proselytize. And I'm like, I'm a nice person. I don't judge people, but then I have that. And it's like, you want to come to my door, you know, fuck off. And I'd be not rude. Just I don't even want to hear you. And it's like, Oh, I'm doing that thing. I'm like stigmatizing people. I'm not even listening to who you are. Even when you're not like, when you want to talk to me, I will not go to you in a group of people. I'll go to someone else. And I'm like, that's, that's pretty, I, I can't be doing that. And I only knew that hindsight, like from being in this jujitsu gym where you got a Protestant um, and you got Mormons and then you have like people who are uh, Christian and they're all operating together, right? In this place, I'm teaching their kiddos and doing jujitsu with them. And I, I fall in love with them, like the people, right? And I really enjoy them because all I could think about is, oh, he got me in an arm bar. Oh, his kid really needs to like, you know, sprint a little more. He's kind of lagging behind. Or, oh, that is, the other kid really pays a lot of attention. I really admire that in him. And I'm thinking of these human elements and that. And I identify with them at that point. And then I'm, like, hanging out with people who you don't really speak very good English and who are, like, from Venezuela and stuff. And that wouldn't have been my life. And I'm getting exposed to all these things, but it's jujitsu first. It's, like, how we relate first. And then from there, like, I, I grow and I understand these people. And that's helped me through my stigmas, which is like just doing social things that put me in an environment where I can't really control who I'm socializing with. Go to a tournament, you know, and also if you're in the other predicament, what I've heard is, is like if you are being um, as long as you're not being like harmed, but if people do look down upon you for whatever you are, um, you know, one of the best ways to be able to like pierce through that shit is show the fuck up and be the best version of yourself. And I don't mean like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm not talking about that. I just mean like you're there to do, you know, baseball, like Jackie Robinson. It's pretty cliche. Right. But it's the truth. Like show them your, what you believe in, what your value, how you value yourself, show them who you are. And it's undeniable at some point. And people will look up to you and when they look up to you, it's like, you know, I'm sorry. That was a rant. That's good. I, I, I agree with it. Absolutely. Because jujitsu in this case, jujitsu is that glue that brings you guys, brings everyone together. And then you pull from that or you, I kind of, it's a terrible analogy, like an octopus, people kind of extend from that, um, in their own little sets and in their own little divisions of what kind of maybe their ideologies or, or how they identify are, but everybody has that common bond and, and that, as you mentioned, that common bond is, is very, very important because if, like if, if I, I live with three other guys right now, if, if I didn't have some kind of common bond or didn't share any, any interest or any, anything between us that, that brought us together, it'd be very strange. Like mm -hmm. if, if one of them was a big gamer and I had nothing to do with gaming or if one of them I, it's hard to think of things because we have so much in, we do have so much in common, but 
But if there was, if there was nothing in common, it's very, very hard to relate with people. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that may be one of the great things about humans is, is we almost always have something in common with somebody else. And so it's kind of that, that cliche saying, well, I don't think you're as different as you think I, as you think you are. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not the exact exact verbiage of it, but I think you you understand what I'm saying is yeah. is even if he has a if she has a different background, a different religion, uh, a different outlook on life, a different political ideology, if everything is seemingly different to, uh, for her and me, I'm sure there's still something that can can bring us together. And and just because she has differing views, I don't hate her. I don't dis dis despise her. She's just different, and I can appreciate that. I can agree to disagree with her if yeah. you want to say that. And uh, and I like when conversations can be able to get there because um, one of the things that I seem to value is to be able to talk with someone maybe about our differences um, or even the things that we feel without that that fear that like the communication is going to get derailed into drama because you know like the dis the 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 lag or like the difference between what I feel and what I say that's really important for me to be able to to, to close that gap as much as I can because I always find in the end it hurts me and it hurts other people and I learned through poetry that a lot of people think that way like it, I could safely generalize that to quite a few pe better people because most people think that they're going to go up there and that everyone's going to hate what they have and everyone appreciates it as long as they're not like spitting at the crowd or doing something mean and absurd right like they're just like wow they're super supportive and like and that was just indicative of just people i felt like is that fear of like kind of like here i am and what are you going to do about it and everyone a lot of people could recognize that that's a scary thing to do and they're pretty supportive you know yeah it, it can be difficult to be open uh because I, I think because that fear is there that they're going to reject me for, for being who I am as an individual, they're going to reject me. And that's, that's likely not going to be the case. We may not be as different as, as we think we are. Yeah. Uh, I'll just go with the kind of the poet, the poetry thing of, of being open. Like, as you mentioned, it's, it's intimidating. It's very intimidating and it's, it's kind of refreshing and it can be kind of annoying at times, especially with social media okay. when somebody is there's a difference between somebody being open and somebody being transparent and somebody being quote unquote authentic. Um, everybody loves somebody who's authentic. And that's, I think it's a good thing because they're not being contrived. They're not trying to win somebody over by, by saying, well, this is my experience and, and I'm being open. So you should, you should, you should accept me because I'm being open. Uh, I, I think as human beings, we can often tell when somebody's, being somewhat manipulative in that manner versus when somebody's authentic they're just they're just saying i like it is they don't expect anything in return they don't expect everybody to like them they don't probably don't want everybody to like them yeah um because when you it's another cliche and you try to get everybody to like you nobody does or you, you can't you just can't please everybody no i, um, I think also that you get a lot of feedback in that situation and that's what i that's kind of what i mean um and you really helped me elaborate on that was like if there's something wrong in my thinking right or if there is um 
something that you don't even necessarily like. I need to be able to, to have the relate trust in you enough for you to be able to criticize me. And then you could also take that onto a whole crowd. I need you to boo and I need you to boo. Like I need you to, you know what I mean? I don't want this crowd. That's like, if you're a comedian where it's like, you know, the crowd that follows you everywhere. Right. And yeah. they, they love you. No matter what you say, they're going to laugh. You're not going to get much feedback from them. Like you fundamentally in the way that people work from my understanding, just like listening to like Jordan Peterson and people like that, it's like you, you, um, outsource your consciousness like that's the whole thing about either writing and being able to observe your writing or talking and listening to someone's facial reaction that's talk therapy or just a straight conversation we're like if i'm telling you wild stuff and like you're reacting negatively it's shaping the way that i perceive myself in my own world and you know like i have to be in a place where i could do that with someone like if i were to say something and i were to be like um you know i'd make a, a ginger joke right and you were like Oh man, that wasn't funny. I'm like, oh, okay. So how I try to break the ice in my comedy, that's not, I'm a little offensive and mean. Well, thanks. Now I know that. Cause we, you could say that you don't have to like leave it under the surface. And I didn't learn. It was a learning opportunity, you know? Yeah. And I think we, we need that. Like I have that with my son all the time. Um, when in my, in my realm between him and I, when it's just him and I, or me and him, and then I have like a friend that he, like one of my friends that he's close with, right? He'll like test boundaries. He'll do, he'll tease and do all these things, right? And then if I just leave them with that friend, he'll never do any of those things. And the thing that you learn about like child psychology is, um, and he's like on his best behavior, is like a pretty well socialized child um, with, you know, like learn to set boundaries and all that other stuff. They only feel secure with their parents to be able to, to um, or even best friend, to test these boundaries because they know that they'll be safe. And they be, need to be able to have that environment to push them there. That's why you have all of these power struggles. And that's why you have friends that bicker. Like that's them learning those boundaries. And they need to have someone that they feel safe with who they're not going to leave them or, you know, uh, abandon them, whatever those things are. Right. Um, but also be fucking honest. Right. Mm -hmm. About about what their what their experience is so that they can learn. You know, you can tell them how to do it, but usually experience, it pays off a lot. Cause I've told my son numerous lessons. I'm like, Hey, you guys don't be mean to each other. This is what you should do. And they just go off and bicker and bicker. And like, they figure it out whenever they figure it out. Just like my son's grandfather, when he figures out the bike riding and stuff, like, you know, just got to figure it out and experience it and just give him the room. Yeah. It's, it's very true. Is uh, we can be told things day in and day out, but unless we experience it ourselves, it's, it's probably not going to stick very well. Um, that's, that's one of those great things about learning about people's stories or learning from biographies or how, how people did things is we can, we can glean from them how to do things properly, what may or may not work. But until we react those own practice practices ourselves, we're not going to know if they work for us because just because it worked for, for her doesn't mean it's going to work for me. Um, kind of like we were talking about earlier, but it, it comes down to that, that experience of, of giving it a shot ourselves. Uh, going into the, the unknown within our or from ourselves to to really understand what does and doesn't work and and when you're interacting with other people what what you can and can't get away with with them because um, I have I have friends that uh, we we share offensive things all the time and we're offensive to one another but it doesn't it doesn't matter one because we love each other and it, there's but there's also no malintent um, but there are other people who I'm always kind and courteous toward, not because 
I don't want to hurt them or be fragile to them, but because that's how they are to me. And so I, I try to reciprocate what what they give back or what they give to me. I try to give back to them. It's it's more so out of appreciation than than not feeling comfortable enough with them. Um, and one of the good things about about ginger jokes is nobody actually cares about gingers, so it doesn't <laughs> matter. You're not going to offend anybody by by calling people gingers or, or saying we don't have souls. <laughs> I know the actual ginger root is a lot spicier than the people. <laughs> oh yes, it is. <laughs> Um, unless you read the book Angela's Ashes, that's a wild book. Um, who, who, who wrote that? Oh, I don't or, remember. It's, it's all about like kids growing up in the famine, um, and then also in the Great Depression. It's these two like these two Irish kids, and they grow up. Um, they basically like live here and they're outcast because they're Irish and people didn't like Irish. Like were pretty offensive to Irish people overall around the Depression era, and their dad okay. was like super alcoholic. It was just sad. It just recounts their whole life. They're losing some of their brothers and sisters because of sickness. And then also not have malnutrition because dad's like a drunk and then going to Ireland. And then it's a depression there too. And it's just the same thing. They had a house. This won't ruin it too bad, but <laughs> they had a house and, um, they live, they live in a two story house in the, uh, kitchen and, um, living room was on the first story. Well, they realized that there was this terrible, terrible smell. And the whole neighborhood shitter is in their mudroom. And it's like, and it floods. Their house, their whole house flooded. And it just filled with like the shit. And it would just smell like shit. And they'd have to like walk through, wade through that to get to their upper, like set, you know, their second story. And it was the winter time and they barely can get any food to be able to like, warm themselves up it's just a really fucked up story man wow yeah it and, sounds rough yeah and is the kid does wonderful and it's just like it's yeah a lot of adversity but um because i love you know the autobiography such as yourself but i stick to sometimes i just listen to some pretty hard stuff out there man but uh i i love to listen to those kinds of adversity because it's just very interesting on what would make somebody pull themselves out of those kinds of situations because i see people struggle so much and like yourself what are those people who who find that thing earlier on or find something earlier on and they're able to develop themselves and like what's the disconnect between the two it's it's interesting um before i take away all of your time though you're good um, okay uh because the for hiking what how quickly did you start? You like to hike a lot and uh, you do some very cool routes. Um, how quickly did you ramp the hiking up? What was your progression? What was your progression into hiking? And then here's another question that I kind of fucked up, but why did you want to move out West? Was it, is it like this thing from the, I don't know what it's like from the East coast with people like the mountains and stuff, or was it something else? So I'll, I'll put the hiking for a second. And I'll answer the first one first. Um, so I had moved out to Las Vegas in 20, 2014 to 2015. I was I lived in Las Vegas, and uh, I, I absolutely loved it there. I would it's still like the big city that I would still live in. Um, if I were to pick a big city, it'd be Las Vegas. Um, and again, like I said, I don't drink, I don't gamble, I don't smoke, I don't have any kind of traditional quote unquote vices. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just a great city. It's convenient. It's it's 
infrastructure is great. Um, oh, I love the terrain yeah. around it. Um, and so I, when I went back to Georgia, I actually went back to help my mother with her health. She's, she's fine now, but I went back because she was in poor health. And uh, after about a year, I decided I want to move again. And uh, initially it was in Colorado and Wyoming um, is where I started looking for work. And then it was like you said, it was because of the mountains It's because of the different terrain. It was, it was just beauty everywhere you look. And so in, in the East it's, I grew up in, in mountainous terrain. It's beautiful. It really is, but it's, it's just different. It really is. Um, and I know so many people from the East coast who, who go out West and they're like, I can't believe people even live on the East coast or, wow. or why is everybody still congregated over there? But I think thankfully they still are. A congregated yeah. over there. <laughs> um, and so what, what it was, it was the terrain, it was the, the scenery. And I've always, always loved national parks. And so that was a big impetus is there's tons of national parks out here. Um, and it, it's interesting that hiking and, and exploring on foot and by my own, my own power wasn't a huge influence for me at the time, but it, but I, you can just drive to places here mm -hmm. and, and find beauty. And so I think that was, that was definitely part of it. Um, as far as my, my progression, I, I definitely was not out of shape when I moved. Uh, I did bodybuilding stuff. And like I mentioned before, I, I had gotten begun transitioning into, to being in the Navy. Um, I was actually slated to, go to OCS and I think it's, uh, I don't want to say it wrong. I think it might be Maryland, but officer candidate school for the Navy. Um, and from there I was supposed to go to buds for, uh, Navy seal tra tra like training. And I, I passed all the qualifications to get into that. And then I decided I don't want to do it. So I was in great shape. I was in, in tremendous shape. And, uh, so I just, I just really just started. My, my first hike in Washington was um, Grover the Patriarchs and Mount Rainier. It's, it's a very small walk around the, the old growth trees. Beautiful. And while I was there, I was almost back to my car and I rolled my ankle really hard. I thought I broke it. I get cracked. I thought for sure it had broken. Um, and partially because of ego, there was people around. I just kept, I just kept walking. I was like, <laughs> you, can't, you can't stop here and act like Peter, Peter Griffin on the sidewalk and just like wheezing on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I kept walking on it and, uh, and I think I got some ankle issues before with like rolling my ankle and, and spraining my ankle like historically. And so that contributed to it. And, uh, so I couldn't walk for a little, like a week or two. I couldn't really walk too well. I could walk, but nothing, nothing great. Uh, and, in part because my relationship at the time wasn't doing so well, I, I would go out on the weekends or I'd go out and then do, like find places to explore. Oh. And, and I think everybody does learn this is you can drive to absolutely beautiful places. You really can, but you got to walk to get to even better places. And so it just began with, with walking here and there. And, uh, I got, did Mount Sai that July I'd moved in June I climb. I had hiked Mount Sai in July. Um, I had been to where else did I go? I know I went down to Crater Crater Lake, and kind of the mid mid July I, I went down to Crater Lake, and that was actually my first backpacking or overnight trip. 
Oh, how is that? I've never been to so, Crater Lake. It was it was beautiful, and it's it's one of those places that like everybody sees the lake, they see the view of the lake. Um, it was one of the places where you knew that it was going to be special as soon as you walked up to the rim, because where the road is at the, at least at this one turnout that I was at, there was a parking lot, but you couldn't see into the lake unless you walked a little bit. Mm-hmm. So walk like five ten minutes, and I I had this feeling that this is going to be imposing. Uh, it's going to be spectacular. Not, not in a, I'm expecting this to be this way, but there was just a feeling that something is going to, to, to blossom within me or, or be struck upon me. That's going to be special. Mm-hmm. And so just walking up to the rim, I, I kind of had that feeling. I looked over and the lake is com- and completely laid out before you. It's absolutely stunning. And, uh, I don't, I don't remember if I even, decided that I want to do an overnight trip here, or if it was just like, well, it's getting dark. I, I'd like to do a hike. Um, I can't remember what it was, <laughs> but uh, it, it was really short. And, and people ask me, well, how should I get started with overnight trips and stuff? I'm like, do something short, do something non-committing, do something that you could easily do in a day or half a day or a quarter of a day. Um, but just go out, make a camp and, and see how you feel. If, it, if it's too anxiety ridden, you can always walk back to your vehicle or walk out. And so that was, that was kind of without, without realizing I was taking my own advice in that regard. And I, I had uh, hiked up to uh, up Mount Scott, which I don't, I don't think it's the highest point in the park. It might be, uh, but it's, it's like a mile and a half, a thousand feet, 1500 feet of gain to, to the lookout. Yeah. And I'd started at like, I think I started at, 7 or 8 p.m. And so it was already kind of twilight. And by the time I got there, it was dark. (laughs) And so I just set up my tent outside the the fire lookout. And then a uh, smart setup. And that was just my my first night out. Uh, I had been camping before, but never like backpacking camping. How how was your experience for your first night out? Was it pretty enjoyable or? So that I don't don't remember very much. Um, The one I do remember was this i may be i may have just told you a lie it may have been my, sec, it may have been my second backpacking trip um it's it's okay i found out from memory <laughs> i even have like false <laughs> memories of like things that happened to my dad and me oh, yeah. that never were real i was like whoa fuck, man it's, and i tell i tell my mom this all the time but my for the past three years my chronology in my mind is pictures oh oh like, wow. I, if i if i see one of my pictures I'm like, oh, that was that weekend and that that month. Like, I know wow. my chronology if I see a picture, but kind of recanting on it, like out of the blue, it can be difficult. So it's either either that hike to Mount Scott and Crater Lake, or is the week before or the week after I went to Stanley, Idaho. Ooh, and uh, Stanley, Idaho. I don't want to talk too much about it because it's it's a hidden gem. Um, it's growing, but it's a, a beautiful place in the sawtooths of of uh, Idaho. And uh, I can't remember how I found Stanley or what made me want to go there, but uh, I drove out there and then uh, there was a lake called Sawtooth Lake. And I, Stanley is kind of my pilgrimage site. I've been back every year since then. Um, and so I go once a year. And uh, so I hiked up Sawtooth Lake. It's, it's five miles there and five miles back and like 1,800 feet of gain. So still kind of small. You got a, you got a friend there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, so I hiked, hiked up there and uh, 
that I do remember how I felt. It was it was amazing. Like there was no fear. There was nothing. Um, oh wow! No, nothing nothing bad at all. It was only good good feelings. And I think that going forward has been a huge huge thing with me. And I've actually told three or four people just this week who have I, who I've been talking to. They're like, "How do you feel when you're out there?" Or like, "Do you get scared?" And like, that's my favorite place to be. Like I I could. I could live outdoors in the wilderness, like in, in spurts the rest of my life. Like I like coming yeah. back home. I really do. Uh-huh. But if I could sleep outside every day, I would do it. <laughs> and like, I, I get excited for sleeping outside. I, I get excited for climbing peaks and, and going these places. But one of the biggest excitements is just being able to be in a sleeping bag outside Oh really? And, yeah, wow. and that that itself is something I absolutely love. It's one of the biggest things for me. It was when did you realize that? Was it during this process of like the backpacking? Um, and what was yeah. life like before that? Were, were you just it, like I'm always I'm always sad when I sleep, <laughs> and then you're like, oh, I got backpacking. I'm happy now. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I know, but uh, it wasn't like that at all. It's it's kind of one of the things you don't know until you yeah. until you have it. <laughs> or you don't you don't know until it's gone but uh like i i sleep fine i just i sleep just fine at home i I'm, I, just, I have no problem sleeping but it's just better when i'm outside and it is it has been part of this this process of, of working on the boulder list of, of going on trips that require me to be outside because a lot of these cannot be done as day trips or as as single pushes and so so you're kind of forced to be outside and and it's it's made me just absolutely love even if like if you have a, if you have a nice view and a sunset and a sunrise that's that's the best and you're yeah. in good weather but even if i don't have that if i'm on, i can honestly say some of my favorite campsites the most peaceful i've ever been have been at, at entirely forested campsites like at two thousand feet of elevation and just a babbling brook nearby um it's just it's just so peaceful and it's hard for me to explain but it's it's just where I, I feel the most comfortable. Yeah. Like I've had some self-discovery like that. I've realized that through running and rock climbing and these activities and even martial arts that there are these little unknowns, these ways that I'm like very satisfied and like, just like at peace with myself and things I get excited, like real things that generate the feeling of excitement that I never hoped I would have one day. Like, you know, just nothing. They just blossomed out of nowhere. Like it was never disguised as angst. It was just, it just became one day. And like, it's wonderful because then you can, there's more buttons to push. <laughs> yeah. It, it's fascinating that you say that because like, I've, I'm, I'm very fortunate overall in my life, not just because of my circumstances. It, it's in addition to that, but I've never, I've never been severely depressed for extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. And I, I go through periods of depression. I think everybody does here and there, whether they realize it as depression, clinical depression or not. Uh, but I first started noting these periods of depression when I was in college is around the fall. I would each, each year I would get this seasonal depression, not even related to the weather. I don't, I don't think it was, mm-hmm. um, and around no, October, November of each year. And I, and I always associated it with, I was very much somebody who was quote unquote grinding. 
Mm. I, I did lots of classes. I didn't have a social life. I didn't have, I was, I was very insular. I, I was always doing something. So when things began to wind down, I would, I would feel like kind of this depression. I would just, I would just push through it and I'd be fine on the other end, thankfully. But I, I bring that up to say that I've been through periods of my life in retrospect that probably weren't the best situations. I probably wasn't the healthiest for me, whether it's in terms of like what I was doing or the situation I was in. But in that moment, when I was going through it, I thought nothing was wrong. I didn't have any kind of angst or, or depression going on. But, but in retrospect, it's like, well, damn, I probably should have been depressed. That was a shitty situation. But, but I don't know if it's because I'm, I'm fortunately it's, it may be because I'm just geared that way where I, I'm just grateful for anything and everything that's, that's coming my way. And that's, that's also been a practice is, uh, is having gratitude, so, so much gratitude. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. Cause they, they've even shown that with, um, with like, what is it? Loving kindness meditation, mm-hmm. um, where they were to put people who were like mindfulness practitioners or people meditate and they were to, I don't always get it confused between like an MRI or a CAT scan, but it's wherever they're able to measure brain activity. And they were able to show that, that people who did practice this took an absurdly long time though, for these huge bent for what they were able to see, um, who practice this like meta meditation, this loving kindness, basically spending time focusing on the feelings of greatness or, or sorry, gratefulness, um, for other people and wishing them love, like just those thoughts. And they were able to show that they had more brain activity in areas that related to compassion and love. And, you know, and I, I think that about my think about things like that all the time, because um, hiking, especially um, running, whatever you want to call it, is like exacerbated that because my self-talk, like all I had was myself. And I realized that my self-talk would infest everything before Aww. I even did it. And like that self-talk was the foundation for how I perceived reality and how I experienced like you know, something, how experienced tiredness in relation to me starting on a trail. You know what I mean? Do I like, like the way that I navigate that and how I treat myself creates this basic situation and makes it something more than what it is. I, th- I think that you're, you're right in the aspect of we, like our self-talk is, it's, it's kind of funny how it's, it's kind of become the thing to, to say, I'm my own worst enemy or, or I'm, my, I, I talk trash to myself. And so there's been this wave, I think it's good, um, but there's been this wave of, of we need to treat ourselves better. Mm-hmm. Like not just like physically, but more so mentally and emotionally. We yeah. need to be a little bit more, more lenient to ourselves. Is, and uh, it's, it's okay if we're not meeting all of our goals and expectations as they come to us. Uh, we need to strive for those things, but, but it's okay if we don't always meet them. And it's, it's not, it doesn't mean we're a shitty human. It doesn't mean that we're terrible or that we, we don't deserve anything in our life, but what we, we do that, I think that's a basic human right to deserve certain things or to be, a, be afforded certain things. And, and oftentimes it seems like we take, we try to take that away from ourselves. It's like, if I didn't do this thing, then I don't, I don't deserve anything. And, uh, and I've, I've seen a wave on social media in particular where people, I don't know if it's coming to terms with that just just expressing it um or just realizing it because other people mention it like well it's like 
maybe some people talk trash to themselves. They don't even know it. And then they see somebody else is like, well, I was, I was my own worst enemy and I was hating myself and I was being mean to myself and I realized it and I'm trying to change that. And then somebody else reads that. And it's like, well, shit, I'm doing the exact same thing that they're doing. I don't even know it. Mm-hmm. And, and then that just causes a, a spark or a change um, that kind of changes who that person is or, or how they interact with themselves, which is, which is huge. And when, and when we're for our own, we're, when we're only with our own thoughts and we're, we're out and about or, or doing our, our pursuits or whatever we do as, as individuals, that's when we're, we're talking to ourselves. And I, I guarantee I sound like a crazy person. I do it at home. <laughs> I'll be talking to myself. And, and, and part is because I am by myself so often that I'm who I have to talk to. It's not like there's another character within me that I'm talking to, but it's, it's just me thinking out loud. And I think that's pretty natural, but it's, it's, I think it's funny if somebody were to come into my house or when my roommates pops up and they're like, what are you talking to? I'm like, oh, just, just myself. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I do the same thing all the time, especially it's why I love those runs like, or hiking by myself. Oh um, yeah. But there's a place for David Goggins and like, you know, oh, carry yeah. the fucking boat. Like, and th- so that, but that goes to what we were talking about way before, which was like this whole thing on like, um, you know, tolerance is I don't think it's like, you know, um, I don't think it's an often or not. I think it's a, more of a dichotomy because I think that's, it's a dichotomy to ourselves and it's a dichotomy that we place on other people. It is like, you can be too tolerant and you can be too rigid. You know, you can, you, and I've done it to myself. I've done it to my own child all the time, you know, mm-hmm. to where it was just like, like I've been manipulated and not manipulated. Uh, well, yeah, I have in that way. Um, like even by my own son and not in like super clever ways, but just like pretty obvious, like, Oh, I feel insecure. And you're like, you just take advantage of that insecurity. And it's like, now you just flip the whole thing to where, um, we're not really addressing the problem anymore, you know? And that was because like, I was being too tolerant at that part. And then I'll oscillate back forth as a human being and I'll be too rigid, you know? And then there's that sweet spot in the middle that I find myself where it just all is, you know, where I'm like, Mm -hmm you know, setting appropriate boundaries and not not being, being firm, but not being too like tyrannical and oppressive within my own self, my own son, my own friends or people I don't even know. Like it's so fucked because there's not like a right or a wrong. It's like every day, moment to moment, like is what I think correct. There's like, you know what I mean? Is my process right? And you just check it. And like my experience in sport is like, that is what life is about. It was surprising that I never treated work like that. Like that, you know, you showed up and it's like, how do I um, rewrite and improve my process? That's why I'm here. That's why I exist. Like I do jujitsu yeah. or I rock climb or I, I hike to hike more fucking mountains. I don't want to hike the same mountain over and over mm-hmm. again and not put much passion into it at all. Cause like, fuck, yeah. man. We're, we're, we're trying to strive for improvement mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and we can go overboard with that. And so one example of that is, is like during the end season for where I can climb some of Washington's top 100, I won't go on hikes that don't contribute to that <laughs> because I'm like, well, I'm wasting energy. Yeah. Um, I could be that. I could be doing that energy climbing something. And it's, it's, it's a false, false narrative in my own mind. And I do like do other hikes, but it's, it's been in the past where I wouldn't um, just cause you, you mentioned David Goggins. And uh, you mentioned listening to adversity and you mentioned Jordan Peterson. I presume you know who Jocko Willink is. Yeah. So 
uh, I've, one of the podcasts I've listened to most on, on trails is Jocko's because oh. he, he goes through stories and tales and interviews with people who have had, have had the worst hand dealt to them in life. And it, it's that perspective that it gives me that, well, what I'm doing isn't hard. What I'm doing isn't tough. And so if, if that human being has the chutzpah to go through what they went through, I definitely can. Yeah. Um, and so also from, from Goggins, so two, I guess two and a half weeks ago, I was on a, uh, a, a long day trip <laughs> uh, climbing a peak called Kosho Peak. And uh, I, I, thought, I had thought of doing it as an overnight trip uh, because it's a beautiful area, it really is, but the weather wasn't compliant, very compliant. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll just see if I can do it in a day. I was expecting it to be a, a 15 to 18 hour day. And uh, so the, the terrain is very technical throughout the, not like hard rock climbing or anything like that, but it's just very slow going. You're going across a, a ridge um, and traversing on all this rocky terrain that has no trail. So I, I left my car at, I think I left my car at 4.15 in the morning. Um, I got to my summit at 3 p.m. So I was, ha- I was halfway done at 3 p.m. So 11 hours later, I was about halfway done. And this, this terrain is such that you only gain about 4,000 feet in the first couple miles. And then everything that you gained after that, you kind of went down and up, down and up, down and up, except for like 800 feet. And so the same elevation profile was waiting for me on the way back. So it wasn't going to be like you go up a volcano and your descent time is half of what it took to ascend. It's going to be approximately the same. And so I was, was hiking back and, uh, and I knew right then I was like, I was like, I was like, I'm in trouble. (laughs) I was like, this is going to be a fun day. And, and that smile, honestly, that smile and that optimism of like, I'm going to embrace this. That never left me. Uh, and I, I attribute to a lot of the philosophies that I listen to. And so later on, about 8 p.m. or so, it started to get dark. It also started to rain. Then. So it started raining around 8 p.m. And it rained for about an hour and a half. And then it, it was just clouded. So it was dark and I was in a bubble. And with a headlamp, and if you're, in a, if you're in, a, in a cloud with a headlamp at night, it's just refracting light everywhere. So you see like 10, 15 feet, and then it's just washout. <laughs> And so that was my existence for the next seven hours, I think. Oh, I got back wow. to my car at 2.45 in the morning. Um, and so it was, a, it was a 22 and a half hour day. Yeah. And, and it sounds like I'm just bragging on, this, bragging on this story, but what brings it up is David Goggins. And I think I can, I can remember exactly where I was. I think it was like 10.30 at night, 10 o'clock at night. But I, I know exactly where I was, the position I was in, my surroundings, what they look like. But I thought, I'm only at 40%. I was like, shit, I'm not even at 30%. Yeah. And if, if anybody knows David Goggins, he has a 40% rule. Whenever you think you're at your limit, you're only at 40%, motherfucker. Yeah. Um, and, and so I thought that, and I was like, because I was, I was feeling pretty beat up. Because yeah. my feet had been wet since I left the car, because everything was, everything was wet brush. It had rained the night before, so all this wet brush was there. And all, the beginning of this traverse was all wet grass. And my feet had kind of dried out. The shoes had dried out. The socks hadn't um, during the middle of the day. And then it started raining again and they got wet again. And so my feet were hating me and everything. And I, was, I wasn't feeling the best, but I wasn't down and out by any means. But I thought, well, I feel like shit, but 
with a smile on my face, it's like, I'm not even at 40%. I can just keep going. I was like, I'm fine. I was like, I was like, I got enough food in here. I got, if I need, it's not so cold that if I stopped and slept right there on the side of the mountain, I would, I would die or anything. Um, but, but I was, I was so happy. One, during that entire process, because it was such a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but also in retrospect, I was, I even wrote a trip report about it. And I said, um, I was glad to have this adversity. It, it, it's been a while since I've had a difficult trip like this, that that made me struggle more. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was so grateful just to have that adversity injected into my life. That's what the thing is, is like, for, for some reason, these experiences, I, I've never been able to match what you did is not like you said the bragging and like, it's what you did is not superhuman and you it's very indicative of what we all have the potential of having there's certain things i mean you go sea kayaking if you want to go and do like the there's like some weird sea kayaking adventures you could have you could have backpacking adventures ultra marathon adventures bike packing adventures like or ride bike road bike across the united states like all of these is place where you put yourself in like type three fun or type two fun somewhere right around there to where it's like you really feel like you don't have anything left to give these movies that we watch that emulate these experiences that maybe we might crave or like seem really cool to see like i'm telling when i've experienced them like what you're talking about like it has taught me so much it has opened more myself up to to me and it's like the only way that I've really been able to internalize that stuff, like epic things that are human, epically human things are really thrown in a very safe way, right? Not being dumb, but throwing myself in like severe hardship recreationally, right? Not like an Auschwitz or something like that. Yeah, I, but, I'm with you 100%. But there's like something about that, like a really hardcore situation. And the only way we're going to, we can have it in a constructive and safe way. And within our current, like, you know, modern civilization or like, or that, you know, and like even rock climbing is wonderful. Cause I think I'm going to fucking die all the time. Yeah. And I got my, cl- and I got my gear on and it's like, that's not happening. And I feel like we're on like some massive quest. When we get through, we survived. And it's like, yeah. man, all people have done this a bunch of times. This isn't really dangerous. You can, pl- well, it is, it can be dangerous, but like <laughs> you're fine. You're probably only a small little bit of risk. And, yeah. but the perceived situation was way different. Like I'm more at risk in a car, but that situation. Uh, yeah taught me that you know but yeah uh, Alden, i'm sorry to cut it sh- well not cut it short but i appreciate your time and yeah. the the one thing is, is if you would be so kind in the future um not perhaps the near future but in like a month or two to do a round two so we can talk about your hiking because yeah. i really i would love, love i would talking love this you, is man. uh it's been a, a beautiful conversation that I, I appreciate it very much yeah. uh i guess just as a another recommendation kind of a culmination you uh for an autobiography uh i don't know if you've heard of colin o'brady oh so colin o'brady has a book called the impossible first Mm. uh and it's absolutely astounding talking about physical feats he he was the first human to self-supported uh or i guess it was unsupported self power himself across antarctica so this i think it was the winter of 2018 which is the summer of 2018 in uh in antarctica he he traveled over 900 miles by sled like he pulled he pulled a sled on skis across antarctica wow 
Um, and that, that he narrates that book and he's from Portland. Um, it's absolutely astounding, astounding book. Yeah. I'm going to check that out and then I'll make sure to leave that in the show notes for everyone too. That's, but that's I, I would totally be down for round two. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that, man. And uh, is there anywhere that people can uh, find out more about your trips or anything? Uh, I post trip reports on northwesthikers.net. Um, uh, I think all my, my Facebook is just Alden Rhino. My Instagram, Alden underscore G underscore Rhino. You just type in Alden Rhino. It's a very unique name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think all that's public. I don't, I'm like, I'm not trying to, to make this a, a, a personal career or anything like that. It's, it's my passion and I yeah. just love to do it, but uh, I appreciate your time very much. Yeah. So thank you very much. I appreciate this. Alden. Well, I hope you have a wonderful evening, bud. You too. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to check out Alden and his, um, records of his cool adventures and trip reports and all the beautiful photos um you can find him on uh facebook as alden grant rhino and on instagram uh it's the same and i'll be sure to link to his instagram profile in the show notes and i'll um have links and references to the books that we mentioned in the podcast Woo! thanks for listening to this episode if you'd like to check out more about um the featured track by milo you can check out his um work in one of my favorite albums by him so the flies don't come um he's a pretty cool artist but i hope you guys are enjoying the closing to the summer and transitioning to fall have a great week bye